I want to begin just by acknowledging um, the, the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in as a country yet again this week. Um, you, you probably have already heard about another shooting in Odessa, Texas this time where uh, the death toll has recently risen. They announced this morning to seven uh, and over 20 uh, injured as well from it. And, and so we've got this piece uh, weighing heavily upon us, this continual refrain of gun violence in our country. Um, on top of as well, I want to acknowledge this horrible hurricane that is bracing to hit the southeast. And they're still not exactly sure where this is going to happen. Um, but if it makes landfall, it will be a very destructive force. And hundreds of thousands of people will have their homes and their lives affected by this. So we have all of these heavy topics weighing upon us. Uh, and, and on top of the, many of the other currents that kind of pop in and out of the news as well. Why, why can't we come up with an ethical solution for border control that honors human dignity? Why can't our society move towards less hatred rather than more hatred, it seems? It just all feels like we're running on a treadmill and we're failing and failing and failing again. And I'm sure that many of you feel this failure on an individual level as well. It's hard uh, being a human in the world at this point in time, and we have so many different responsibilities that we all are juggling. I, I don't know all the stories, but I know that many of you are just trying to make ends meet. Many of you are just trying to do the next right thing, and that can often be one of the most difficult tasks of all. And so it can feel like we're failing and failing again, but that's why it's so good that we're in church this morning, because our message, our Christian faith, tells us that there is always hope, despite whatever's going on in the news, despite what's ever going on in our personal life. Our Christian message tells us, in fact, that in our faith, we believe that there is promise even in the midst of failure. To explore this theme more this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. We'll jump around a little bit in there, and I'll explain that. But I've titled this sermon... The promise of failure. Please pray with me. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Send your living word to walk amongst us now, to challenge our assumptions, to set our hearts ablaze, and to make us whole again. Amen. Go ahead and open those Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Uh, and if you would please rise as you are able. Uh, we like to rise when we read the gospel passage out of respect and reverence for the word of God being read amongst us. We're starting at Luke chapter 14 and we read verse 1, but then we jump all the way ahead to verse 7. Verse 1 kind of gives us some context for what's going on. And then from verse 7 through 14, we get a little bit more of the story. So this is Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 1. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Now jump down to verse 7, the next paragraph. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. 
But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do you not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid? But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Friends, this is the good news. It's the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As you may or may not know, when I was in seminary, uh, studying, working on my master's degree to become a pastor, I took many of my courses online. And now, many of you might have had experience with online courses, but briefly, the way that it works is uh, you read a whole bunch of stuff each week, and maybe you watch a video that your professor posts, and then you have to uh, respond in all these online forums and talk to your classmates, and et cetera, et cetera. But then at the end of the semester, There's usually some sort of big paper that the professor makes you write because they can't really gather you together for a test. So you have to write some big paper and then you have to email it in because after all, it's an online class. You don't get to turn it in to the professor. And one day when I was finishing up one of these online classes, I submitted my paper and then I had to wait a couple of weeks. And a couple weeks later, the professor emailed me back and it was a note about my final paper. And the professor was informing me that I had done good work on some of the questions for this final, but that I needed to rewrite a few sections and resubmit my paper. Now, I was really upset by this email. In my entire academic career up to that point, this had never happened to me before. I thought I had worked hard on that paper, and I was not prepared for these negative comments to be appearing in my inbox. And so I told my wife about this email from my professor. And I said, you know, it's really just unclear what the professor is even looking for. And it's so unfair that I have to rewrite parts of my paper. And you know what? My paper wasn't confusing. It was the professor's original questions that were confusing. And my wife calmly listened, as she often does. And she says, hey, Nick, can I read the email? And I knew at that exact moment that my ploy was up. I knew that by letting my wife read the email that I was describing to her, she would come to understand that I had maybe fudged a few details here and there in order to make myself appear more like the victim in this circumstance. Truth be told, I used to do this type of stuff a lot. As a child, I learned the subtle art of fudging the details so that I wouldn't get in as much trouble. As I've gotten older, thankfully, I've learned to be a bit more honest and a a bit less dramatic about certain circumstances. But every now and then I do fall into these old habits. And oftentimes I don't even realize I'm doing it. But I'll find myself telling a story and without even meaning to, I'll exaggerate a little bit. Just to make it look like I'm coming out better in this particular story. And I know, I know I'm not the only one that does this. I know that we all have that tendency to maybe fudge a few details here and there. A little white lie never hurt anyone, we say. And you see, I know that some of you might do this as well because 
I am so adept at fudging the details in my own stories that I can tell when someone else is doing the same thing. It seems to me that our society ingrains these types of behaviors in us. And it goes deep. There's something within each of us that is deathly afraid of looking like a failure. Even looking anything close to a failure. We need to look good. We need to look better than other people in the room. We need to look like we've got it all together. We can't be the ones who has last year's trends. We can't be the ones who make mistakes. We can't be the ones who end up looking foolish. We can't be the ones who have to rewrite parts of their final paper for that professor. As the famous saying goes, failure is not an option. In Luke's gospel passage that we just read, Jesus is confronting this exact mindset. Jesus is attending a feast at a Pharisee's house, and he notices how at this party everyone seems to be jockeying for the good seats at the table, the honorable seats close to the front. And after observing this behavior, Jesus shares some advice with the guests about taking the least honorable seats. Jesus says that when we take the lowest seat at the table, we won't run the risk of being shamed when the host asks us to move on down to make room for someone better. And now this parable can be a little bit confusing if you aren't familiar with the culture of Jesus' day. Jesus lived in a culture that's a little bit different than what we have here in 2019, to say the least. And so you see, at that time and in that part of the country, there was this very elaborate social system that was all about honor and shame. Nearly every interaction that took place in first century Palestine was somehow governed by this type of transaction taking place where one person was honored and another person was shamed. Every decision, every action that took place in Jesus' day was somehow governed by this honor-shame system. And so when people were invited to a dinner party, where you sat at the table mattered a lot. Would you be publicly honored with a good seat close to the front? Or would you be publicly shamed with a spot in the back? Our social system today is obviously different than this type of honor-shame society, but the core aspects remain the same. In Jesus' time, people wanted to be honored and they wanted to avoid shame. And today, we probably aren't as concerned about honor as we should be, but we are concerned about looking good, looking put together, looking like we've got it all figured out. We want to appear as if we're better than others. We want to appear more successful, more normal than other people we might encounter. Just like those individuals in first century Palestine, we want to avoid shame. It's funny because in my experience, church is often one of the places where people seem most concerned with avoiding their shame. We come to church and we want to all be dressed up and looking nice. And you do. You all look so great this morning. And that makes sense, right? There is something honorable about wearing nice clothes to the house of the Lord. I understand it. But also it carries that subtle message that we have to be put together when we come to this place. We can't let other people see that we didn't have time to iron this week, right? Or whatever else the case might be. 
Maybe it's because church is thought of as this holy place, or maybe it's because we think God is watching us more closely within these four walls. But the truth remains that church is often one of the places where people are most concerned with how they appear to others. At church, every week, you come neatly dressed, and you sit still during worship, and you sing the songs and participate in the prayers. And then we have coffee hour where we all laugh and talk about how above average our lives are, right? (laughs) It's so sad, though, because in our efforts to look like everything is all neatly put together, I think we miss some of the gift that our Christian faith is trying to offer us. Because in my mind, church should be the place where everyone is loved and welcomed. Even if you have creases in your clothes. Church should be the place where you don't have to worry about someone gossiping about you. Where we don't have to worry that someone is whispering behind your back and putting you down. Where we don't have to worry about hiding our faults. Every single week, we start worship here with a time of confession and forgiveness. We did it again today. And you might have noticed that in these summer months, I changed it a little bit, where we're not just reading words off a page, but I've tried to make that a more organic experience for us, where I just lead us in a free-form prayer and leave some time for silence for us to talk with God personally. And the reason being is that I wanted us, at least for a season, to enter in more fully to this confession and forgiveness practice. Because, frankly, this is what it's all about, church. We come together as broken people who didn't have a perfect week. We come together knowing that we've made mistakes. But most importantly, we've come together to be reminded of God's grace and mercy in our life. And so it carries this strong message that church needs to be a place where broken people come together to be honest with themselves, to be honest with God, and to be supported by one another, and ultimately supported by the love, grace, and mercy of God. You see, church is a different place than the rest of the world, and we have to start realizing that. While society might be telling us that failure is not an option, church invites us to ask a very scandalous question. What if failure is actually the point? After all, isn't that the heart of Jesus' message? You see, in the parable about the banquet, Jesus is telling us to fail. Jesus advises everyone there to sit at the lowest seat at the table. He's saying to these people, he's not saying this to the people so that they'll be humble and polite Christians. He's saying to them, sit in the place of failure. Embrace and accept your failure, Jesus says. Quit trying to hide from it. Quit pretending that you've got it all figured out and that you deserve the honorable place at the table. Fail and fail again and be okay with that. I know that this is probably making you a little bit uncomfortable because, frankly, this is just not the way that we've been taught to think. But the truth is, in other parts of our society, people are beginning to uncover the promise of failure. I've been reading a lot lately about some of the shifts that are going on in our education system. As you know, I've got uh, three children and two of them are in school or about to start school next week. I know that many of our young people either started this week or in the days ahead. And one of the things that educators and researchers have discovered is that it's very important to teach children what they call grit. Have you heard of this yet? Grit schools and 
preaching grit to our children. It's the idea that we need to teach children how to fail and how to, in the same moment, pick themselves up and keep trying. And they found that the children who can understand this process of failing and working hard and trying and trying again, they will have the best long-term outcomes in their education. Because even if you're really smart in first grade, there might come a point where everything isn't coming easily to you. And so by fifth grade, when stuff's getting a little bit difficult, some of those really intelligent first graders will just give up and quit. But if you learn grit, you learn to keep going. You learn the perseverance necessary to complete your educational goals. And now it's not just in education where this is happening either. They've also uncovered the promise of failure in the tech industry. Now, this is fascinating. Venture capitalists, right, the people with all the money who are trying to find the next big thing, venture capitalists are going out and looking for individuals whose startup companies have failed. This is a unique characteristic that they find valuable because they know if they're going to invest their money in someone, they want a person who has some wisdom, a person who's been around the block a few times, a person who has failed and knows not to make the same mistakes twice. And so in this tech industry where billions of dollars are being thrown around, one of the most desirable traits that people are looking for is a failure. Someone who has tried to start a company before and not succeeded because that person has learned a great deal more than the individual who's just been successful their whole life. Church, what would happen if we learned to see our failures in this way? What if we saw failure as a sign of promise and a source of wisdom? As an invitation to learn and grow and try again? What if rather than trying to hide our faults, rather than trying to always look like we've got it all put together, what if we were just openly and honestly ourselves? Wouldn't that change everything? This is what Jesus wants for us. This is what Jesus invites us to do. He invites us to completely disregard the social system that we have that says failure is not an option. And instead, Jesus invites us to see the ways that failure can make us unique and the ways that failure can bring about all sorts of new possibilities. After all, Jesus failed. At first glance, it seems as if the cross is the greatest failure of them all. Right? Jesus was the Messiah. He was supposed to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and take back the promised land for the Israelites. But instead, the Romans captured and publicly executed him on a cross. And I'm sure at first, most people saw the cross as Jesus' ultimate failure. But as Christians, we know there is promise in the failure. As Christians, we know the greatest promises of all are found on the cross. As Christians, we believe that God takes failure and turns it into new life. The cross of Jesus, the place of pain and suffering and failure, this is actually God's grand plan. The cross is actually the specific location where we understand God best. And so if that's the case, if God's power is made perfect in our weakness as the Apostle Paul says, if the cross is actually a source of new life, well, then that means that our pain and our shame and our failure is actually just the part of our life where God is already at work. 
Our calling as Christians isn't to avoid failure and death. Our calling is to live through failure and death. The problem is that so many churches, so many expressions of Christianity today seem to have forgotten this fundamental truth. For too long, churches have been trying to be amusement parks. There are churches out there this morning that are going to tell congregants that the reason you're sick or the reason you're in need or the reason you failed is because you didn't pray hard enough. Or they'll go in even a step further and they'll say, God is punishing you and that's why you failed, that's why you are sick, that's why you're in need. Church, that's not the way that it works. Sickness and need and failure are not punishments handed out by God. Sickness and need and failure are the very places where God promises to show up for us. There is promise in our failure. And the point, church, is that we, are needing, we need to be there for one another in the midst of our own failures. We are a community of the cross. And that means that we believe that by the power of God, we can live through our pain and struggles together. By the power of God, we can carry each other through the ups and downs of life. By the power of God, we can find the promise in the failure. So rather than worrying about what seat you're sitting at, or worrying about what the professor says about your paper, or what other people might think if you happen to fail, what we need to do is turn our focus back towards the cross. We need to set our minds on Jesus who took all of our failure, all of our mistakes, all of our sin, and from that brought new life. There's promise in your failure, church. There's promise in the pain and the suffering. God is there and ready and willing and hoping to lead you into new life. Amen.